This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Science has shown that if you want to be a better athlete, you need to go from training that sounds like this to training that sounds like this. Thanks to the revolutionary Bose Open Ear Audio Design, the Bose Frame Tempo lets you listen to your music without headphones, so you stay aware of your surroundings, no matter what you come across when you're exercising outside. Two specially designed speakers embedded in the temples produce sound that's loud and deep. An advanced microphone system focuses on your voice and reduces the sound of wind and other noises, so you can have clearer conversations. And the battery lasts for up to eight hours on a charge. The lightweight nylon frames are sweat and weather resistant and feature soft silicon nose pads for a more comfortable fit. Plus, interchangeable polarized lenses crafted for specific light conditions. The Bose Frames Tempo, designed for sports, engineered for sound. Learn more about how they can elevate your run or ride at Bose.com. That's B-O-S-E.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. I want you to think for a minute of the most memorable kid from your grade school days. Really conjure a picture in your head. Maybe it was that boy with the rad skater haircut. Or what about the girl who could do like the craziest things on the monkey bars. I knew a girl like that. And now, I want you to imagine instead that you went to school in West Michigan, where there was a student in your class named Stephen Manella, and that your parents told you to stay away from him and his brothers. I mean, there were, there were kids that weren't supposed to hang out with us because we'd show up on our BMX bikes with, like, rifles slung over our shoulder. So what happens to a boy who grows up riding a bicycle with a rifle slung over his shoulder? He becomes the Meat Eater. That's the name of Stephen's Netflix show and his podcast. Meat Eater, in fact, is a growing outdoor media brand that includes a YouTube channel and an apparel line. As you might guess, Stephen is a hunter and he likes to cook what he kills. He's exceptionally good at both the hunting and the cooking. I'll tell you something about running around in the mountains looking for animals and doing primitive things and thinking primitive thoughts. You get hungry. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean just regular hungry. Steven is also a writer, and he's really good at that too. After his adventurous childhood, which had him and his brothers hunting all kinds of game in the woods near their home, they knew they wanted to have jobs in the outdoors. Though, they had little idea how to make that happen. The only thing we knew that you would do, really, is you'd be a game warden. We, and it, we didn't even know what the hell that meant, but it was like that was like, oh, you know, I'll become a game warden. And then later we got sophisticated enough to, for some people to be like, I'm going to be a wildlife biologist, because we thought, well, hell, they must be outside all the time. Happily, my... <laughs> older brothers both became ecologists. I, I, I kept trying to think I was going to find a way to make a living as a trapper. Into my late teens, early 20s, my first two years of college, I went night classes at community college in order to be able to run trap lines in the daytime. And then I just gave up on it, right? 
But by then I developed interest in writing. Stephen earned a master's degree in nonfiction writing. And in 2000, he was introduced to my colleague, Outside Magazine Deputy Editor Mary Turner. He sent her an essay about fishing in a concrete canal at the base of a hydroelectric dam. It was great, and it kicked off his professional career. He would go on to write a string of exceptional features for Outside. But a lot of those stories, they stressed Mary out. He was always heading off on trips and assignments where I'd be like, please come back alive, please come back alive. You know, he got a parasite and got really sick from eating raw bear meat once. He almost froze to death on a pack rafting trip in Alaska and his legs went numb and he couldn't get out of the river. But here's the thing, he's the consummate outdoorsman and he'd come back with these incredible survival tales and he would turn in these stories with this really fresh, unique voice And he's got really clean copy. Over the last two decades, Stephen has found himself in all kinds of situations in the wilderness. Sometimes things have gone exactly as planned, but usually not. Which is how it goes for most of us out there, right? For today's episode, we are going to hear tales from two veteran adventurers about experiences that taught them lasting lessons and that offered the rest of us invaluable guidance for how to go about our own trips into the wild. I mean, I ate literally dozens of species of fish and game, everything ranging from like suckers to snapping turtles to white-tailed deer. We'd bring home crayfish, anything. Frog legs. If we brought it home, we ate it. That's Stephen talking more about his childhood, which sounded pretty awesome. But yeah, man, we were always like very encouraged to to be outside and we didn't worry about any kind of danger that might come with it. As Stephen got older and took more ambitious trips, he did have to worry about danger. But fortunately, as he has become a media personality, he's avoided the usual wilderness survival tropes. Earlier this month, he published his latest book, The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. Unlike so many guidebooks in the genre, It contains legitimately useful knowledge for staying safe and comfortable in the outdoors. Which means there's less advice on rare emergencies, like being attacked by a mountain lion, and more information on common threats, like hypothermia. As Stephen sees it, most of the dangers we face outside, they're of our own making. You know, from from books and movies, you kind of have this idea that you're going to get, there's going to be a plane wreck, you know, and you'll be like stranded on a deserted island, you know, and it was like, no fault of your own, there you are. But I think that when you look at people getting in trouble in the outdoors, it's oftentimes has a lot to do with the fact that they put themselves in that position willfully. Stephen is the first to admit that he's done this himself. When I asked him to share a wilderness story, that really taught him something? He told me about a time when his own obsession with a hunting goal led him to make a dangerous decision while on a trip in the Alaskan Arctic. It's something that he's never really stopped thinking about. It was some years ago, and Stephen was hunting caribou with two friends, one moderately experienced and the other with very little experience. Their plan was to drive along the road that parallels the Alaskan pipeline, and that provides the only land access to the north side 
of the Brooks Range. The remotest places in North America, if you look at it just in any kind of mathematical sense of like proximity to highways, proximity to settlements and stuff, the remotest places are, you know, the North Slope of the Brooks Range. And that pipeline road, the Hall Road, is really the only way you can connect to the road system in the lower part of the state and drive up into the Arctic. And from there, you can just use rivers as trails, so to speak. Regulations forbid hunting within five miles of the pipeline. So the guys figured they'd park their truck and then drag canoes up rivers to make that distance. After they'd gotten their caribou, they'd float downstream back to the truck. And the rivers are never perfectly perpendicular, right? So you might have to drag a canoe nine miles up a river to get five miles off the pipeline just because they come at angles. Making this more difficult than it already sounds, they were there in mid-October, far later than most people choose to travel in the Arctic. So we went up and it was already really cold and starting to turn. And we went up on, I think, about 13 miles up a river dragging canoes and camped. And it was an area where we normally would find a lot of caribou. Uh, you know, we'd never had a problem in the past. Like if you went up with a few guys, like one of you would usually get one every day and within a couple of days you'd be done. But there's just nothing around. Our thing was they had already migrated through. They'd already headed south and they'll cross over the Brooks Range and winter down in the timber. But we kept waiting and waiting and waiting. We come a long ways, man. I think we sat there eight days and I'd brought this thing, this tent called the Arctic Oven. And we would heat it with a heater. It was called like a heat pal or something. It was a heater people used for sailboats. And you'd burn denatured alcohol in it so you wouldn't get carbon monoxide poisoning inside your tent. We used all of our fuel in one night. And it was cold, man. And weirdly, there was a tundra fire burning about a mile and a half from where we were camped. And we would now and then walk over to that tundra fire to warm up a little bit because fuel was very hard to come by. But the ground was smoldering. You could see smoke coming up. And as it stays that cold and days go by and days go by, the river that we came in on starts to freeze in places. So all the slow stretches are freezing up. And I had this sort of naive idea that it would maybe thaw back out. I think it was on the eighth or ninth day when a group of bulls came through moving north. And we got three of them. And that's a lot of meat. You know, it's a lot of weight. We had three of those and a couple canoes. Here we are now, like, we've really put ourselves into a situation. Like, you, you have a moral and legal obligation to salvage that stuff. Like, you can't just ditch it and leave, obviously. We wanted it, for sure. And whether or not it was illegal or not, I would never have left the meat. And by the time we got everything butchered and ready to move, the river was in bad shape. And we started trying to go down, and in places we had to sort of get the canoe full of meat up on the ice and use it like a sled and drag the meat along the ice. And it was such slow going, because sometimes you're falling through the ice, you're dragging it, we're wearing chest waders, just trying to move this stuff down. Uh, you know, we had envisioned that we would just paddle out of there, right? But it wasn't going to happen. And you have to appreciate at that time of year how short the days are. Like, daylight, you don't have any daylight hours to get anything done. One of the guys that was with us, the, the one who was very inexperienced, he starts to get really panicky about where we left the truck. Very fixated on an irrational need to go find the truck as quickly as possible 
And I know that if we go down this river, we're going to eventually hit where we need to hit and walk. We all came up the same damn river that we were going down. It wasn't a direct route, but you like the river didn't change course. And when I talk about irrational, it's like getting so panicky that you can't see something that obvious. He eventually just strikes off across the tundra. It was kind of this weird moment where instead of running after him, like I should have done, I was more like irritated by what I regarded as like a bit of weakness, you know, and had this kind of uh, immature perspective, like, oh, you know, whatever, man. I was just so wholly fixed on getting done what I wanted to get done, which is get these three caribou carcasses down to the truck, that I let this dude run off. After a couple of hours, I was starting to come to my head like maybe like he just had no idea what he was doing. And it was starting to occur to me like, you know, life isn't going to be the same really anymore. If something happens to this guy. Like everything's going to be different. And then we got up on the bank at one time. I could hear like a truck horn way off and I could see headlights flashing. And in that moment, I realized that he had shit-locked into going the right direction through the blowing snow. Any irritation I felt all of a sudden got almost kind of worse because here he was not helping, you know? So me and my other buddy, hours later, finally get down to where he is and get the stuff loaded up. And you know, it's a 20-some-hour drive to get out of there and through that whole drive never ever mentioned my frustration never talked about it never mentioned how stupid i thought that was to do in the days and then weeks and now years following that trip steven says he's thought a lot about how people behave in difficult situations and what caused him and his friend to make such poor decisions what were the experiences that he missed in life that made him capable of being panicky? What were the experiences that I had that made it that I was so focused on getting done what I wanted to get done, I would get it done if it killed me. And I started to wonder too, like which of those versions is more reckless, right? Panicking and running off in the tundra is reckless. But it's also reckless to be that, like, by God, I have it in my head that I'm going to get this done, and I don't care what happens. And it's kind of like two versions of being dangerous. Stephen told me that he believes he's reached a different level of maturity now, that he's able to put the needs of others before his own goals, even if that person is doing something selfish and irrational. This is partly because of the empathy he's developed since becoming a father. The other day I had my daughter out. We were out hunting. It was in the low teens. She was crying because her feet were so cold. And I made her like cry for a while. But then eventually I'm like, all right, all right. You know, and we went and got her warmed up. But I kind of wanted her to also in that moment kind of experience that pain to realize that that pain isn't the end of the world. You know, it can be part of it. But ultimately, gave up on what we were doing in order to get her warmed up once I realized that the, the, the lesson had kind of gone on far enough. And I can point out that my dad would not have extended that same courtesy to me when I was a little kid. The other enduring lesson for Stephen from the Alaska trip 
is that being the person with the most skills and experience means that you have inherent responsibilities and that you have to live up to that. I find the older I get, when I'm in a stressful situation, I almost get a little bit calmer. And I think one of the things you're trying to do is demonstrate calmness to the people around you. In, in sort of any kind of a leadership position, you try to have an infectious calm that prevents people from going down any kind of weird path. And in that instance, I really didn't. I was frustrated. I was like, whatever, dude. You know, if you vanish, you vanish. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we spoke about the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio without headphones. Research has shown that listening to music while exercising doesn't just make your training more fun. It makes you a better athlete by improving your mood, lowering your perceived exertion level, and accelerating your performance. But don't just take it from scientists. Take it from real athletes. It just gives me energy. Like, your cadence of your run is just, I think music is meant to go with that. This is Jane Galvin, director of music for Electric Flight Crew, a running club that synchronizes workouts in cities across the country with shared playlists. I love, you know, more upbeat kind of techno that maybe isn't everyone's favorite, but the beats per minute really counts. These days, Jen does a running on the streets of L.A., and oversees the creation of Electric Flight Crew's weekly playlists. She can't imagine why anyone would run without music. Running is really hard, and I do think music is really what can, like, carry you through. It's just so powerful. The Bose Frames Tempo makes your music especially powerful, with speakers in the temples that produce a sound that's louder and deeper, so you can feel the music, even over the rush of the wind, when moving at speeds of 25 miles an hour. But with no headphones, you can also hear what's going on around you. The scratch and shatter-resistant polarized lenses are ideal for most outdoor sports, and the aerodynamic nylon frames are so light and comfortable, you'll forget that they're even there. The Bose Frames Tempo. It's the sound you expect from Bose, with everything you need from sports sunglasses. Learn more at Bose.com. Almost every year, Outside publishes a story about how to land your dream job. This isn't because we like to repeat ourselves. It's because readers love these stories. Everyone, it seems, wants to fantasize about changing up their career. And while I don't have the data to back this up, I'm nearly certain that the most popular dream is to be an adventure photographer. The idea of traveling the world to capture images of remarkable athletes in stunning locations, it just has to be the best gig there is. But have you ever talked to a professional adventure photographer? My name is Crystal Wright, and I am a wonderful chaotic shit show. Right. So Crystal is actually a professional adventure photographer and film director. She's had her photos published by Outside many times, and also by National Geographic. And she's done commercial work for brands like Red Bull and Patagonia and Outdoor Research. This is her dream job. But she makes it clear that she hardly has her career or her life all figured out. I've met some young photographers and then once they've met me, they're like, oh, oh, thank God, like, you know, they see like what a complete shit show I am. And they're like, oh, that made me feel better. I'm like, well, yeah, I get what you're saying. At the same time, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but <laughs> Crystal is extremely talented. 
But when you talk to her about her long professional journey, you come to appreciate her traits that don't automatically come through in her photos, like her bravery and her grit. Her own simple explanation for how she got her dream job? I just said yes a lot. What I mean by that is that when someone was like, oh, hey, do you want to go hang out and you know shoot me kite surfing? Yes. Should I go down to Canberra to go shoot a 24-hour mountain bike race? Yes. Like I just kept saying yes all the time because the one thing I was taught when I was younger is that you're better off saying yes because you can always say no later. Crystal also says that anyone who aspires to be an adventure photographer has to get very used to rejection because most of the time, when you submit images or pitch an idea to a media outlet or brand, you're going to get a no. And when you get your head around that, it's really not the worst thing in the world. I mean, look at 2020. I mean, there's a whole lot more that's worse than hearing the answer no. So my blunt advice there is suck it up. Like you have to put yourself out there again and again and again. When you sort of reflect back on a career, it's sort of easy to go, oh, yeah, it just, it just happened like that. But for me, when I look back, I'm like, no, it was really hard. Even now, I'm still having to work hard and I'm still having to adapt my career to the times and figure out, OK, well, what am I going to do different to make sure I can still stay working in this field? Then there are the more nuanced lessons that she's learned through years of making mistakes and getting things right and even lucking into perfect moments. Back in 2010, Crystal was a stringer for an Australian newspaper, specializing in sports. It paid the rent, but she had come to hate the work, especially after she inadvertently became the paper's go-to photographer for horse racing. One day, a photographer was away and they said, oh, Crystal, you ever shot horse racing before? I was like, nah, but sure, I'll, I'll go out and do it. And then the next week they're like, oh, Crystal, well, you did pretty good last week, so we'll, we'll put you on the races again. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And next thing I knew, I was put on every single race for two years. I was over it. One of the upsides of being a stringer is that you have some freedom. So Crystal joined an expedition with a group of base jumpers to remote Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. Base jumpers are the ones who fling themselves off cliffs and buildings and bridges, and then pull a ripcord on their parachutes before splatting into the ground, hopefully. I was camping with 23 base jumpers around the world on this frozen fjord for a month. And on this trip, even though I'm in this most spectacular location, everyone kept talking about Moab, 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 Moab. And I'm like, what, what, what is Moab? And where on earth is that? Moab is a legendary adventure sports mecca in the high desert of Utah. But Crystal was from Australia, so not on her radar, I guess. After that trip, all I could think about was like this Moab place. And an opportunity came to me where I was selected to be a part of this workshop outside of New York. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to fly all the way to the States uh, just for this workshop, well, I need to make more out of this trip. So I decided, right, I want to go check out this Moab place. She was just 23 years old and didn't have much money. But she did have friends in the adventure sports community. So she was able to bum a ride from the Denver airport and connect with a crew of base jumpers that was camping around Moab. One day in this uh, campground, someone's like, oh yeah, Castleton Tower. It's, uh, you know, it's just 40 minutes down the road. And I was like, wait, what? Castleton Tower is a stunning 400-foot-tall sandstone spire. It's been featured in numerous posters and T-shirts. 
There are a number of famous rock climbing routes to the top. Like I've sort of seen photos of this tower, but I always thought, oh, that thing must be in the middle of nowhere, you know, hours away. But then it's like, oh no, it's just 40 minutes down the road. And I was like, oh shit, let's, let's formulate a plan. Crystal wanted to shoot base jumpers leaping from the summit. This required getting the jumpers up the tower and getting herself airborne. Because I know like to shoot this properly, I need to have some sort of aerial perspective. So I looked into planes, I looked into helicopters, Finally, we come across this, like, paramotor. And I was like, oh, brilliant. A paramotor is a motorized paraglider. Picture a pilot under a canopy with a giant fan on his or her back. Crystal had found a guy with a tandem rig, and everything was set. Until the guy's daughter went into labor six weeks early, and he bailed. So they started looking around for another option. Basically, like, we're driving around town and we just happen to spot a paramotor in this trailer. And so we pull up and this guy, like, we had no idea who he was, but we're like, oh, mate, there's, you know, do you fly tandems? And he's like, oh, look, I'm really sorry. It's just a solo rig. But um, if you're looking for a tandem pilot, he's like, uh, Lynn Ottinger over at the rock shop has a tandem set up. Lynn wasn't around, but a family member at their climbing shop said, sure, he'll take you up. Meet him near the base of Castleton Tower tomorrow at 2 p.m. The base jumpers had to start, like, basically right on sunrise uh, because we were trying to get 10 jumpers to the top of the tower. Uh, What I find impressive is that we actually got seven up there in the end, which is quite the ordeal. Crystal found herself nervously waiting for her pilot on the side of the road. I remember being a bit nervous, thinking, oh, shit, are they even going to show up? And when they do, like, this one guy that jumps out, I'm like, oh, you're Lynn. And he's like, no, 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 I'm Lynn's son. And so when I see Lynn, he's like, well, in his 70s. The fact that her pilot was pushing 80 years old didn't phase her, though. He had a cool contraption. His propeller was hooked up to the back of a metal tricycle with two seats. Crystal had never flown in any kind of paramotor before, but no matter, she climbed in. So we took off and... You know, we started buzzing around Castle and Tower, and, and at first I had such a tunnel vision, I wanted to shoot it from overhead. Anyways, I'm trying to shoot this image, and it's just not working. And of course, through my absolute rookie, rookie maneuver, is that I had no communication with the base jumpers. Uh, I never thought about the fact that the loud engine right behind me was, of course, going to drown out any radio communication. And then We tried to cut the motor to give like a signal, but then that just made things even more confusing. And at some point, Lynn's like, all right, I'm just going to start descending. And I was sort of trying to argue, but at the same time, I just gave into the situation because it just wasn't really working out how I had dreamt the shot. And as we descend, Mike Tomchak, who was like the second last jumper up top, we were, you know, coming beside Cassidy and he just happened to leap at the right moment and as a mentor always taught me, is like, you got to be prepared for the unexpected. And that just rings so true. I, of course, I was always ready to shoot. And when you look at the image, you think, ah, oh, that's so obvious. Like, of course, you've been this guy, you, you shoot Castle and side on to showcase the tower formation. But yeah, sometimes that's the danger of like, when you do have a vision in your head prior to a shoot, you can get a little bit too tunnel vision. But yeah, we descend and everyone's safe and sound. And, you know, we're cracking a beer in the car park and I'm looking through the images, and I remember thinking, oh, that's a pretty cool image. It was a cool image. A black and white shot of jumper Mike Tomchek, frozen in midair, looking 
like he had just casually stepped off the summit. And yet, for a long time, very few people saw it. When I tried to get it published, no one was really interested. And, and at this time, I only had a couple of contacts with magazines in Australia and such. So Crystal went back to Sydney and to the work she hated at the newspaper. Though, she would quit within a year and take the leap to pursuing adventure photography full-time. It was another year later that her image from Castleton won a competition held by Photo District News, which, at the time, was a big deal in the business. All of a sudden, she got a flood of calls from outlets that wanted to publish the shot. And when people started requesting the image, I was like, it, it, it certainly sort of gives you that confidence of like, okay, like obviously I, I must be doing something right if people are wanting to publish my work. Yeah, it's a little confidence booster. Uh, and that, that can really help a lot because as a freelancer, oh gosh, like it is a very lonely path at times. Crystal took a lot away from her Castleton experience. That just winging it and taking a trip and seeing what might happen, that can really work out well. Also, don't try to force an idea of what you want to create onto a situation that you can't control. At the end of the day, like, I'm in an industry that really is massively affected by the weather and Mother Nature. And so how, how do you plan Mother Nature? You can try to read the weather reports and try to understand what's happening, but suddenly you're in these much more temperamental places. And so if you come in with such a defined plan, it, that's going to go out the window super fast. And I've had to learn that the hard way, where you have this vision and you're gripping onto it so tightly that if you don't get it, then you've come away feeling quite deflated and almost feeling like you're some sort of failure from a trip. But perhaps I was closed off to seeing other images that were right there in front of my eyes. It is good to come in with some idea or some vision, but what's the light going to do? Like, are the clouds going to roll in and then the sun's going to peek back through? Or, yeah, gosh, there's just so many variables when it comes to shooting adventure. Crystal has had a lot of success over the last decade, though she's also spent much of that time living on the road with no real home. And 2020 has been tough. She lost more than 80% of her work due to the pandemic. Still, she remains optimistic and very much ready to take on whatever comes next. The point of being an artist is to challenge yourself constantly and to adapt, to evolve. And I think that's just the greatest thing about being a creative is that you have no idea how your career is going to evolve. And that's, that to me is always exciting. You can see more of Crystal Wright's photography and film work at crystalwright.com. That's K-R-Y-S-T-L-E-W-R-I-G-H-T.com. Stephen Rinella's new book, The Mediator Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival, is available for sale now at themeateater.com. I'm Michael Roberts. I produced this episode. Our music is by Robbie Carver. This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bose, maker of the new Bose Frames Tempo, high-performance sports sunglasses that deliver high-quality audio. Learn more at Bose.com. We'll be back next week.